Well, good morning, Rock Church. Um, and it is an honor to, um, to present the message on Palm Sunday because it is so important. Before I get going, though, I would just want to remind you that if you are uh, in small groups, um, we are Zooming. And so ask your small group leader about that, as well as with youth group as well. And so uh, it's a way for us to connect and a good way for us to keep in contact with one another and then study God's Word. Um, Palm Sunday, when we recognize what Palm Sunday is, we see that Jesus was at his zenith of his ministry. And uh, we we read in John 12, it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of Pyrenard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." And as what we see here is we see uh, Mary, who is, is an, basically anointing Jesus, and she sees it, she gets it, she understands what's going on, and she knows that she will only have a limited time with him, six days before this whole thing breaks loose. And as Mary is, is putting this perfume and using her hair to, to put it on him, uh, he, he commends her for this because even though it was extravagant and it was expensive and, and she was rebuked for that, Jesus came to her aid and said, no, that's, that's not what this is about. You're only going to have me here for a little while. Jesus knew the time was near and he was trying to communicate with his, his, uh, the, the disciples that that was, that was what was going on, that he was going to Jerusalem to do what he had told them over and over to do, which was to give himself as a ransom for us. It says, uh, Jesus said in verse 7, Leave her alone, he replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And the word that's left out there is see. To see Lazarus, to to be able to actually view this person who had been risen from the dead. What an amazing thing. And there were people who were were coming out two miles east of of Jerusalem to to not only see Jesus, but to see this miracle of miracles. The, The buzz was out. The crowd knew that Jesus had done something that had been unprecedented. And they wanted to see what was going on and how Jesus, uh, what he was like, what he was doing. And as we approach this morning to uh, this, this blessed time, recognizing that Jesus had this kind of a, uh, this opportunity to spend some time with his disciples in this last week and to declare who he was. And uh, with the triumphal entry, we see in Luke 19, which will be our primary passage today, Jesus coming in much different than he had been before, where he actually, uh, he actually uh, kind of bestows the kingdom that he is really uh, the king over. And before this time, John 6, uh, he had fed 3,000 uh, people with five, five bro- uh, barley loaves and two fish. And at the end of that, they wanted to make him king. But he, he got away to a quiet place and escaped them because a year earlier was not time. 
It was not time for him to be king yet. Jesus had things to do. And in in alignment with prophecy, not only Zechariah that Pastor Tri mentioned, but also Daniel 9, we recognize that there was a specific time that that God had planned uh, for Jesus to unveil the fact that he was king. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, the geography is kind of important because Bethany is two, two miles to the east of Jerusalem. And as Jesus comes into this territory, and he had spent the time just the day before with Mary and Martha and Lazarus at the, the, uh, the house of Simon the leper, and they had spent time together, they were right close to Jerusalem, but about two miles away. And so as he approaches, this is the Mount of Olives, and this is, this is where everything happens in his ministry, or much of what happens in his ministry happens here. And so it was a very common place. It would be kind of his, his ministry place as he is approaching this. And the Mount of Olives is so important, not only because of Olivet Discourse and, and several things that had happened during his time, but this is where Jesus would ascend after his 40 days with his disciples later on. And this is where he would also descend in the future. And so Luke continues, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, this is a passage you can just read right over and, and think, oh, that's really interesting that he would send two of his disciples. It doesn't say who, it didn't say which of the two disciples, but he sent two of them. And after getting the assignment, if it was me, I would be a little leery about the assignment because I'm going to go in there and basically take something that isn't mine, assuming that that person knows everything about this or that that person's just going to be cool about it, which in, the, in terms of what happened Jesus had worked this all out. He was very intentional about declaring who he was. And he knew as he was going to come into this Jerusalem and become king, an inaugurated king, that he would come in as a peace king, a king that would, would propagate peace, not war. And so, of course, the donkey was, was needed for that. And as Zechariah had prophesied, this donkey would be a full of a donkey. And he would he would come in on this donkey much different than he had ever gone before. This is very different because if you ask yourself this question, how did Jesus get around normally? The answer would be, he walked. He walked. Almost everywhere he walked. And I'm sure he, and the disciples, and they were in very good shape. But this time, he changes his mode of transportation. He says, this time, you go and get this donkey. And, and that's how we're going to go into Jerusalem, Jesus knowing that that is exactly how it was supposed to happen, how it was prophesied. He goes on in Luke, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? Which makes you think to yourself, okay, they didn't know exactly what was going on. Or they probably would have just left the keys and took the donkey and then off they go. But there's this interaction. And obviously, as as God's spirit was working there, uh, he made that okay. They replied, the Lord needs it. And that was the end of the story, at least the end of what we we, uh, hear there. As we look into further, it says they they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks 
on the road. And so not only do the disciples kind of get this, and you can imagine the excitement of the, of the disciples because they know what this means. They know that their leader is going to be the king. And so if you're like next in command to the king, that's an exciting thing. This is his big day, and so it's kind of a big day for them as well. And obviously, as the waving of the branches, it was an emblem for victory normally and restoration. And so there was this kind of a, a king coming in that had a message behind it that everyone understood. There was, there was no one there that was wondering what this is all about. This is a very common political thing that happened in those days. And Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so 500 years before this happens, Zechariah prophecies how this is going to happen, that he's riding in on a donkey, and which means he's coming in peace, and he's coming into Jerusalem, specifically to this place, and this is where their Messiah would be. And so as it's prophesied ahead of time, this seeing of this fulfilled is an amazing thing. It's amazing for uh, God to line everything up. If you look at Daniel 9 and you do the mathematics and uh, 69 sevens and, and not to get into too much details there, you recognize that from the time that that was prophecy to the time that the, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of God's people, really, from that time on, it was exactly to that day when Jesus would come riding in. So a year, a year earlier, after he had fed 3,000 people, wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. God had it all planned. God knows exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And he, Jesus orchestrated this, this time for him. Luke 19 continues, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they had seen miracle upon miracle, which had kind of culminated in Lazarus as being raised from the dead, not just after uh, eight minutes without air, but three days in a tomb. And everyone knew this was so close to Jerusalem. It was just two miles out of Jerusalem that this occurred. And so as you, as you can imagine, the buzz in the air would be humongous. And Jesus' miracles as he had healed people, and he, as he had cast out demons, as he had provided even wine, one of his first miracles, first miracle, you could recognize these people would be talking about this, kind of like what's going on in, in, in our society today. We're always talking about this would be what is the conversation on the street in Jerusalem. But continue, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They could see that he was coming in as a king. And as far as they, could, as far as they were concerned, he was no king. And so as, as he, they could see this happening, they, they demanded of Jesus to kind of renounce his, his, uh, his procession of him being a king. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And you can look into this verse and you can kind of look at what does it all mean. But in summary, what it really means is this, is that in Colossians 1, 1, 6, 1, 15 or 16, it says that everything was created, was created through him and by him and for him. And so you recognize that as those stones were created actually by Jesus, they would cry out. What it's saying is, is all creation is going to cry out. If, and, and the only natural response to me coming into Jerusalem right now for the people is for them to worship. And it's just un, unbridled worship as, as Jesus comes in. 
And as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And this, this word wept here is a word that doesn't mean just kind of it's got some tears here or he kind of, kind of missed it up in the eyes. It means he actually uncontrollably shook, almost like a convulsion in ways. And so you can almost see this procession maybe possibly even stopping, like there's kind of almost like a traffic jam. I, we don't know that it stopped, but he was convul- almost convulsing as he, as he wept. And what was he weeping over? As he looked out over Jerusalem, he could see in the future what would happen. He could see 37 years in advance when Titus would roll in with his army. He would lay siege to Jerusalem, and the temple would be completely removed. Everything wiped out. And Jesus could see it, and he could see the people's empty lives, and he, he saw how they were, they were hoping for a political king, but they weren't really looking for a savior or a messiah who would be the, the king of their lives spiritually, as well as um, allowing him to be the person that they trust in, rather than Rome or some other political figure. In a way, they missed it by 18 inches. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And what he was saying was, you can't see it. You, you, you've got scales over your eyes You've, you're hardened. And, and this was peace coming riding in on a donkey. It was such a clear message. And what they saw, the Pharisees saw, was, was this, this enemy that they had to get rid of. And, and as we see this all play out, they made sure that the enemy was rid of. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And that's Titus as they lay siege to this city, an area, if you think of Jerusalem as some little small town or something, that, that's completely wrong. Jerusalem was, would, have, would have three million people in it at this time. That's the size of Denver. So as these people were here, there was multitudes of people. And so picturing Jerusalem at this time, obviously, as he comes riding in and, and the celebration that's going on, it would be bigger than normal, but just recognize how huge that is. And then as he looked forward this 37 years in advance, as, as they're laying siege to Jerusalem and Titus is cutting off all supplies and there is mayhem going on, Jesus sees that in, in, the, in the future in verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so this judgment that would come on Jerusalem because they rejected their king, they rejected their Messiah, and they missed it. And they missed it from here to here is about 18 inches. They wanted a king up here and politically, but they didn't really want a king to rule their hearts. Matthew says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And you can just see Jesus as he's weeping uncontrollably. He has that motherly love, like, I just wish you would, I wish you would come underneath my peace. My peace is right here. But if you reject that, there's nothing left for you. And so Jesus came and they rejected him. And they were, even though the nation of Israel was supposed to be the messengers of, of peace and of grace and of love, they rejected that. And so not only did they miss their opportunity to share God's, uh, God's kingdom with many people because they rejected Jesus, the Messiah that God has sent, 
they also uh, gave up their position where they were actually the people who God would communicate his word through. And as we see in AD 70, the temple went away and so did worship. And everything broke loose at that point in time because of the rejection of the Messiah. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. A lot of times you think of a kingdom and you think there are boundaries around it. There's, there's geographical boundaries and there's someone in charge and there's kind of a, there's like a, a little totem pole of, of who's over here and who's over there. And that's not the spiritual kingdom that Jesus is all about and the person who he is as he is king. It's a spiritual kingdom that is, has no boundaries because wherever you go and wherever I go, there's God's kingdom. His Holy Spirit resides inside of us. And so they missed that. They missed the understanding that he wasn't going to take over a certain area. He, was, he came to take over our hearts. Not, not geographical things, not, not Rome, not to overthrow them, not to overthrow anyone. Jesus came to rule hearts. His kingdom is unlimited. Wherever we go, there's, there's always protection. Uh, it's a kingdom of peace. There's no struggle with Rome. There's a place where we serve each other and we love one another, and that's where the kingdom is. And as the result, people will want to see Jesus by the way that we live. In John 13, 34, he says, I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. He, what, it was, what he was saying was this, is that I didn't come to fulfill a bunch of rules or to make up some new rules. He came to replace rules with relationship. Not just love God and love him with your heart, soul, mind, strength, but also to love other people. And so there's a relationship not only from him, but with other people. And as Jesus shared his peace with us as he came into Jerusalem, we also share his peace with other people, his love, his message. And we do that by the way we live, by, by the way that we, we treat other people, the way, the way that we serve other people, and then by the way that we serve each other. People will want to see Jesus when he is king in our lives. In John 12, it says this, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And as we see this challenge from John 13, 34, that this new commandment was not, not 600 and some commandments from the, from the Old Testament, but this primary commandment, which is not only to love God, but to love people, we recognize that this is exactly what these, these people were interested in. We want to see Jesus. We, we're interested now. We, we can see what's going on. And we have the same sort of a influence over the people who know us in our lives. I think it's said that a person who comes to Christ first knows seven believers and has seen seven people's lives before they are drawn to Christ. And that's really just an encouragement for us to know that our lives matter. We matter. The church matters. It has to be here to be a testimony and to be a living example of who Jesus is and why you would want to know Jesus. And so we look forward to a Palm Sunday in the future, not just today, not just next year, but in the future. In Revelation 7, 9, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and that's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And as you recognize that Palm Sunday, for a lot of us as we were growing up, was maybe just another Sunday that we got dressed up and maybe 
a time when we got to get the palms. And I remember it was one of our funnest Sundays when I grew up in church because it was kind of, I have to say that church was kind of boring when I was younger because the church was just sort of really strict and everything. And, and we get these palm branches. And of course, what would you do that, with that as a kid? Well, you'd try to tickle your brother, possibly your, your lone sister. And so you would use these palm branches for this, missing the whole point, which was this, that those palm branches were a significant part of saying, this is a king coming in, and we need to lay down everything. Everything that has cost to us, that has, has value to us, is subservient to this king. And as we look forward to a time when we will spend eternity with Jesus, we recognize that what he wants to do mostly is to reside in our heart. And if you've never received Jesus, I encourage you as we are approaching Easter, we're a week away from Easter, that you need to have a conversation with God, a heartfelt conversation, that, that you would admit that you're a sinner, that you, would believe, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's not some political figure riding in and he's not going to take over this or that. What he wants is your heart and that you believe that he died in the cross for your sins to pay for them and that you would commit to follow him. And that would be the greatest Easter present you could give to God as it glorifies him when we glorify his son. And that's the Easter message as we look forward to that celebration next week when we recognize that he didn't stay in the tomb, that Jesus had a purpose when he came riding into Jerusalem, and it was not to escape the cross. It was to go to the cross so that he could have victory so that we too could have victory. And what a victory that is as we are each, uh, each have a relationship with him personally. I'm going to pray. Father, we just thank you so much that Jesus did what he did. We thank you that you had a time and a place, a wonderful plan for him to come in to Jerusalem to accept the punishment that, that would bring us peace, that we would be free of our sins and the penalty of our sins because we trust in you. We trust in your son. We trust in the payment that you set aside, your beloved son, in our place so that we would not go through that, that punishment. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you as we approach this Easter season, just recognizing that it's a celebration. Even though there's a cross in front of him, for the joy set before him, he set his eyes on the cross, knowing that that was where the victory was. Thank you so much, Jesus, for doing that for us. And we just want to praise you this morning as we recognize that when you rode into Jerusalem, you were riding in there for us, that you were coming to save us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.